Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Crystal, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop highlights from the 2017 American Society of Clinical Oncology, or ASCO, annual meeting. And this is part two of the series, and today's program is a collaborative effort between cancer care and many other cancer organizations. And it really is because of that collaboration and all of your interest in this program that we have over 597 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States, and we also have international participants from Australia, Canada, Cyprus, Ireland, New Zealand and Venezuela. So we do have a bit of a global call as well. We really um, appreciate all of you being on the call today. Today's um, program is supported by AbbVie, the Celgene Corporation, Gilead, Novartis Oncology, Pfizer, Taiho Oncology, Inc., and an educational donation provided by Amgen, and an independent educational grant from Merck and Company, Inc. Now we have, I would say, the best of the best speakers on today's program, really wonderful speakers, and before they begin, I just want to say that you're going to be hearing each one present a, a different type of cancer um, or a different issue in the cancer field. However, as you listen to each presenter, what you may notice is some common themes. And at the very end, um, Dr. Merriam will wrap that up a bit for you as well. Um, um, and so um, just to be aware of that, but you may hear some things that, are, that, that you may hear each of the speakers say um, that are unique to their particular uh, type of cancer but nevertheless have relevance to all cancers. So with that being said, our first speaker is Dr. Keith Eaton. And Dr. Eaton is going to be addressing clinical trials and evidence-based care and quality of life. And uh, Dr. Eaton is um, clinical director, thoracic head and neck oncology, medical director, infusion and pharmacy, medical director, quality, safety and value, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance, associate member, Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, associate professor of medicine, University of Washington School of Medicine. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Eaton. Thanks for the opportunity to speak today. Uh, today, my colleagues and I will discuss the latest developments in cancer research as reported at ASCO, the largest clinical oncology meeting. My talk is meant to frame the presentations you'll hear today, and I'm going to start with a question. How do cancer doctors know the best way to treat our patients? First, we have to understand what it is that matters to patients. Typically, this has been the likelihood of curing a cancer or how long we're able to extend patients' lives. We refer to this as survival. Recently, there's an increased interest in quality of life, which is what it sounds like, the extent that patients are able to maintain their usual activities and be free from cancer or treatment-related symptoms. How do we know what is effective in achieving these goals? Well, what we do is conduct scientific studies to see if a given intervention has a positive effect on the outcome of interest. These scientific studies are called clinical trials. The collection of all the clinical studies that we have, we refer to as the evidence. And when possible, doctors should treat patients according to the best evidence. This is referred to as evidence-based care. So what are clinical trials? Clinical trials are research studies that involve people, uh, usually patients. Most of these trials discussed today will focus on treatment of cancer with new drugs or using known tools in novel ways. Other areas of, 
uh, clinical trials involve cancer prevention, screening, and symptom management. Our current standard treatments are based on the results of previous clinical trials. How do we bring uh, new treatments to patients? Well, there are many steps to the development of a new treatment. The first steps are what are called preclinical, and they're conducted in labs to help identify promising drugs. Prior to testing them in humans, work is done with animals to understand potential toxicities and how we should dose a new drug. Clinical trials begin with a phase one. These are known as first-in-person studies, and they can be done in cancer patients or healthy volunteers. The purpose of phase one trials is to find a safe dose of the drug, determine how the dr drug should be given, and to study the effect of the drug on the body. This is known as toxicities. And from phase one studies, we get what's referred to as the recommended phase two dose. In phase two, we try to determine if a given treatment is effective in a specific cancer and further study the toxicities. These studies typically involve between 30 and 100 patients, um, and they're not definitive. They're, they're compared to what's known as historical control, so how did people do previously? And um, from there, we figure out what looks promising. And promising drugs move on to phase three trials, which are designed to determine whether a new treatment is superior to what we're doing now, which is called the standard of care. These typically involve hundreds to even perhaps thousands of patients. Patients are randomized to different treatments. What this means is it's equivalent of a coin toss to determine which therapy is received. The purpose of doing this is to reduce what's called bias. This is an unintended differences between the groups that might arise if the allocation of the treatment wasn't random. A clinical trial, in order to be ethical, has to have what's called equipoise. This means that if someone who knew about it, like the investigator of the trial, would feel comfortable being randomized to any of the treatment arms. Um, so even though a treatment looks very promising, it may not work as planned and have unexpected toxicity. So this is why we test it against what we consider to be standard. Phase three trials are often double-blinded. This means that both the patient and the treating physician don't know whether what we're adding, the new part, is either the active drug or placebo, an inactive substance or what some people might call a sugar pill. Although some placebos are used in cancer trials, this isn't the same as no treatment as it's usually added to a standard treatment. The purpose of all of these efforts, randomizing the patients, using placebos, and blinding, is to ensure that once a trial is conducted, that we can trust the results uh, are due to the drug and not due to some, something else or some un hidden bias. Successful phase three trials can result in FDA approval of new treatments. So what you'll be hearing about mostly are clinical trials of drugs. What I was gonna talk about next is an intervention study, and it's looking at the quality of life of patients. So this was presented at the ASCO plenary session by uh, Dr. Bosch. Uh, it was done at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Uh, what they did is a randomized clinical trial of 766 advanced cancer patients. Um, and what the intervention was is to have the patients uh, enter uh, qu the answers to 12 questions regarding symptoms that they were having that would be common to cancer patients. Uh, these symptoms were then reported electronically to nurses uh, who then could react to those. And about 77% of the times, uh, the nurses would call back in response to this. 
the patients who got the, uh, didn't get this intervention just received normal care. The primary endpoint of the study, which is what the main outcome of the study was what's known as health-related quality of life at one, as measured at one year. Uh, this was reported previously, and that had improved from eight months to 8.7 months. Um, but what was very interesting is that at this ASCO meeting, they provided later results from the study looking at what's known as a secondary endpoint, so something else they were looking, not the main thing. And this is looking at overall survival. How long did the average the, or the median patient live? And the patients who were randomized to this intervention, namely filling out these uh, computer-based surveys, lived 31 months, whereas the patients who received ordinary care lived 26 months. So this is a difference of five months just with randomizing to this tool where they could report their outcomes. The p-value, which is the size of what we call statistical significance was highly statistically significant, indicating that the, the, this difference between the groups was unlikely to arise by chance. So this was a, a really remarkable result, and interestingly, it didn't involve any drug at all. Many uh, large cancer centers are working to implement uh, similar tools because we feel that this is going to be a very important part for caring for our patients. Uh, the take-home message uh, from this is that even if you uh, as a patient, I do not have access to these, it's important to keep your medical providers informed about your cancer-related cancer, uh, cancer uh, symp symptoms. So I want to close on uh, talking about how do, how do you find a clinical trial? Well, the most important source for finding clinical trials is potentially your treating physician. Um, they oftentimes will know best what uh, things are available to you in your area. Um, many people don't live close to a, a major cancer center but may be interested in pursuing this. There is a central repository of all cancer-related clinical trials at the website cancer.gov. And there you can look up uh, by the specific type of cancer, what stage you have, the geographic location, and potentially the type of drugs that are involved. Oftentimes this generates a big list and it can be difficult to narrow it down. Uh, that's sometimes where you can get help from a physician or calling the uh, involved centers. Um, so with this brief introduction, I wanted to turn you back over uh, to my colleagues for, recent, for discussions about the recent data from ASCO. Thanks for your attention. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Eden. That was excellent and wonderful. Um, thank you. And um, our next speaker is Dr. Julie Graylow, who will be addressing breast cancer um, updates from ASCO. Um, she is the Jill Bennett Endowed Professor of Breast Cancer, Director of Breast Medical Oncology, University of Washington School of Medicine, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Graylow. Thanks so much, Carolyn, and hi, everyone who is on this webcast. Um, I'm going to do a brief overview of exciting new ideas and topics in breast cancer that were, were presented at ASCO 2017. And specifically, I'm going to touch on four topics. One, um, cell cycle inhibitors to enhance or overcome resistance to endocrine therapy, um, HER2-targeted therapy update, um, PARP inhibitors, DNA um, damage drugs, uh, specifically in BRCA1 and 2 mutation carriers, and then the fourth would be um, immunotherapy and breast cancer immune checkpoint inhibitors. 
So let's start with estrogen receptor positive breast cancer. And a hot topic over the last few years has been a new class of drugs that we call cell cycle inhibitors or CDK4-6 inhibitors. Um, these are drugs that have been combined with anti-estrogen therapy, endocrine therapy, in metastatic estrogen receptor positive breast cancer and shown benefit in prolonging the response to the endocrine therapy and overcoming resistance to the endocrine therapy. We actually have two drugs, palbocyclib, which is Ibrance, and ribocyclib, which is Kiskali, which have been FDA approved in 2015 and 2017 in metastatic ER-positive breast cancer. And the big news at ASCO was on yet a third cell cycle inhibitor called abemacyclib, which has not yet been FDA-approved. Uh, the Monarch II trial was presented. It was ASCO abstract number 1000, and it was metastatic estrogen receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancer patients who were postmenopausal and were having progression of their tumor on endocrine therapy. And everybody got fulvestrant or Faslodex, a, a well-known anti-estrogen therapy, and patients were then randomized to the cell cycle inhibitor, abemacyclib, or a placebo. And what was shown at ASCO was that the combination of the two had a much longer time uh, until the tumor uh, started growing again. We call that progression-free survival and had a doubling of the response rate. And the toxicity from this drug, there was um, low white count is a known toxicity of all the drugs in this class. And there was some diarrhea seen with the abemacyclib uh, that was overall pretty well managed, but some people did need to go on therapy for diarrhea. So this is uh, an interesting drug. It's a little bit different than the other two cell cycle inhibitors because um, it, it works a little differently and might even have activity as a single agent, meaning all by itself and not needing to be given with endocrine therapy. And also because the FDA has given this drug uh, breakthrough designation status, uh, we expect that there's a high likelihood it could be approved and available soon in uh, breast cancer patients. There was also one um, small uh, poster, it was number 1019 at ASCO, looking at just giving single-agent abemacyclib in patients with ER-positive brain metastases. And while it was an early trial without a lot of patients, there were some nice responses in brain metastases for ER-positive breast cancer with this drug. So it does seem to penetrate into the brain and might be hopeful for patients with brain metastases. Also, these cell cycle inhibitors are under evaluation in many trials in early-stage breast cancer to see if they can help prevent recurrences in the first place so we don't have to treat metastatic disease. So moving on, in HER2-positive breast cancer, we now have five FDA-approved drugs with HER2 as a target. And the latest one, which was just approved in July, is called Neratinib. I'll mention that uh, in just a minute. A big study that we were all waiting for that was presented at ASCO was called the Affinity Trial. And this was a trial in early stage HER2-positive breast cancer patients where we were looking to see 
if chemotherapy with trastuzumab or Herceptin uh, was the same uh, as chemotherapy with two HER2 antibodies, both trastuzumab and pertuzumab. Of course, we were hoping that the two HER2 antibodies would further reduce recurrences uh, in HER2-positive early-stage disease. Uh, this is late-breaking abstract number 500, the AFFINITY trial. So what was presented in this large trial of almost 5,000 patients were the results with respect to what we call uh, invasive disease-free survival. Has there been a recurrence of breast cancer? And there was a difference. This was reported as a positive trial with the patients who got the two HER2 antibodies, both Herceptin and Pergetta, uh, doing better than the group that just got Herceptin alone with chemo. But um, when we looked at the curves and this was presented, the difference wasn't as great as we would have predicted for the benefit that we've seen in metastatic breast cancer for this combination. And overall, the absolute difference in three-year uh, recurrence of breast cancer was less than 1%. So while it was statistically significant, it uh, was not really very clinically um, important if there's only a 1% difference. Um, we looked at side effects. Heart disease was low in both arms. Diarrhea was increased a little bit with the progetta or pertuzumab being added. Um, and so this actually led us to scratch our heads and have some confusion about who should be getting a full year of both of these antibodies in early-stage breast cancer versus just Herceptin alone. And we haven't sorted that out yet. Um, at this point, I would say lower-risk patients with smaller uh, tumor size, negative lymph nodes should certainly uh, not uh, benefit from having both antibodies. And we're going to have to sort out which subgroups might benefit from a full year of both of these antibodies. Neurotinib, I told you, is another HER2 drug that was just FDA approved in July, and the primary data that led to its approval uh, was not presented at ASCO, but was published in 2016. So it's been approved in HER2-positive breast cancer patients who have completed their chemo and a full year of trastuzumab or Herceptin, and then after they were all done with all of that therapy, they were then randomized to get a year of this oral drug. It's a HER2 therapy called neratinib daily versus a placebo. And the approval was because we did see a benefit. Again, a small benefit, uh, but a real benefit for adding this second HER2 antibody now, not in combination with Herceptin, but after the Herceptin's done. So we're going to have a lot of work to do to figure out who should get neratinib, who should get pertuzumab, who doesn't need either of them, uh, and we haven't sorted that out yet, but we did have one nice abstract at ASCO 2017, abstract number 1005, that looked at neratinib in treating HER2-positive patients with brain metastases, which did show some nice activity. It does also penetrate the blood-brain barrier. So um, we think that... Uh, we should do further studies looking at the benefit of neratinib in metastatic breast cancer. It's not approved in that setting yet, and maybe it could really help those who are dealing with brain metastases. So moving on to BRCA, 
mutation carriers, women who have inherited a mutation in BRCA1 or 2 and um, from their mother or their father and have a breast cancer associated with that, we now have a class of therapies that show promise in this group um, that are called PARP inhibitors. So PARP is an enzyme that's involved in DNA repair, and BRCA1 and 2 gene mutation carriers seem to be very sensitive to drugs that inhibit PARP, so they inhibit DNA repair even further. We also know that there might be a subset of triple negative breast cancer that we call has something called BRCA-ness, so it's BRCA-like, even though you haven't inherited a mutation. And there are assays that we're evaluating, but I'm not sure they're ready for prime time, looking at can we pick out triple negative patients who have BRCA-like features and might also benefit from PARP inhibitors. There are actually... Um, three PARP inhibitors already approved in ovarian cancer patients that either have BRCA1 or 2 mutations or um, some other features. None of these are yet approved in breast cancer. And we saw the results of the Olympiad trial at ASCO 2017. It was late-breaking abstract number four. It made the plenary session, so it was one of the top five presentations selected by the program committee. So this was a trial, again, in metastatic breast cancer patients who had inherited BRCA1 or 2 mutations, and they were randomized to the standard of care, which would have been physician's choice of chemo, you got your choice of which chemo you would give, versus olaparib, one of these PARP inhibitors, which is oral, and you take it twice a day continuously. So the results uh, were very promising. It showed that for taking this oral drug, Olaparib, daily, we had a better progression-free survival, a longer time before the tumor began to grow, and we saw a better response rate um, uh, with that compared to standard chemo. Uh, the main toxicities of this class or drug are some nausea, but it's generally low-grade, and um, some people get an anemia, um, so we do have to watch that. But overall, it's better tolerated for most things than chemotherapy. So the question now is, if you have metastatic breast cancer, should you get tested for BRCA1 and 2, even if you didn't have a strong family history, because you might have access to a new class of therapies if you do have an inherited mutation in BRCA1 and 2. So um, I think all triple negative breast cancer patients should be tested because um, you have a higher rate of having a BRCA1 or 2 mutation, and your only other option right now is chemotherapy. And then there are others who probably should be tested even if the family history wasn't strong, and we'll have to sort out who those are. We're also studying these drugs in early-stage breast cancer patients who have inherited BRCA mutations and in triple-negative breast cancer patients who have a BRCA-like or BRCA-ness profile. So in my last minute or two, just a quick word on immunotherapy in breast cancer. And to date, we think that probably has the most benefit, yet still really unproven, in triple negative breast cancer. So there's a whole class of drugs you'll hear about from others that we call immune checkpoint inhibitors, and they help the T cells in our body that are part of our immune system recognize the immune cells. 
And some of those drugs, they all have funny long names, or pembrolizumab, nivolumab, atezolizumab, avelumab. They're approved for other cancers. None of them are approved yet in breast cancer. And yet we had an early trial in early-stage breast cancer looking at adding pembrolizumab, one of these immune checkpoint inhibitors, to standard chemotherapy before going to surgery. And we showed, at least in triple-negative breast cancer, but also in ER-positive HER2-negative breast cancer, that adding pembrolizumab resulted in a more complete elimination of cancer at the time patients went to surgery. We call that a pathologic complete response. So this is a small trial uh, called the iSPY2 trial. This was abstract number 506. And it's really looking at doing small trials to try to pick winners to then go on to bigger trials. So pembrolizumab uh, met the criteria to move on to bigger trials, more powered trials, to really see does it have benefit that's added in early-stage breast cancer, at least in certain populations like triple-negative breast cancer. We are studying pembrolizumab and other immune checkpoint inhibitors in early-stage breast cancer, in metastatic breast cancer, and particularly in triple-negative breast cancer. So lots of excitement, lots of different new categories of therapy, and lots of hope for the future in breast cancer. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Grelo. That was really outstanding and just very informative and lots of good information. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Carolyn Runowitz. Dr. Runowitz will be addressing ovarian cancer. She is Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Executive Associate Dean for Academic Affairs, Herbert Wertheim College of Medicine, Florida International University. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to Dr. Runowitz. Thank you for including me among your very prominent speakers. Uh, and I'd also like to thank Cancer Care for doing this call because it is so important. The meeting really does present state-of-the-art, up-to-date uh, research and clinical trials. So it is my pleasure to report studies that were presented in GYN cancers, and it's a nice segue from Dr. Graylow because the breast and ovary uh, treatments uh, oftentimes overlap. Uh, so what I'd like to do is, is in the next 10 minutes, kind of go over uh, the new agents, some first-line therapies, maintenance therapy, uh, recurrent disease, and if time permits, talk a little bit about the surgical um, abstracts that were presented. So the new agents included an antibody drug conjugate, um, which has often been used in breast cancer, and it was mervituximab, a folate receptor target antibody drug conjugate with manageable toxicities. It was given with bevacizumab, carboplatin, doxyl, or a PD-1 inhibitor in folate-positive platinum-resistant ovarian cancer using the folate receptor to get the drug in. And Overall, there was an impressive response rate of 30% in heavily treated patients with a progression-free survival, that is, when the patients demonstrated disease progression of 9.5 months when it was added with the bevacizumab, the chemotherapy. So the encouraging results um, will result in this drug, uh, antibody drug conjugate being further developed. Immunotherapy, again, you heard a little bit about this from Dr. Graylow. Um, the PD-L1s, she mentioned Pembro, 
was also looked at in ovarian cancer. It was well tolerated, um, had a durable activity, but a low response rate. However, the patients were very heavily treated, and the most common side effects were arthralgia, nausea, and pruritus. So we're looking, um, based on um, the biology of um, PD-1 and ovarian cancer, uh, looking at further developing this class of drugs in this disease. There was also an abstract which looked at engineered T cells, specifically recognizing a common antigen seen in ovarian cancer, the NYESO1, to to target those tumors that expressed uh, that antigen. And this was in a very um, heavily treated refractory uh, platinum-resistant group. And there was, it was a phase one, so they weren't looking for activity, but dosing um, and toxicity, as you heard from Dr. Eaton. And so I think that we will see more of that class of drugs further developed. An oral multi-target kinase inhibitor was also one of the newer agents. Um, It's ENMD2076. And it was particularly active with an impressive stable disease response of 68% in patients with clear cell cancers, which have been in the past particularly challenging. And as I tell my patients, stable disease in patients who developed recurrent ovarian cancer often gives you quality of life, few symptoms, and is an outcome that's worth achieving. There were some stemness inhibitor phase two uh, studies that were uh, done in platinum-resistant disease showing activity and an HDAC inhibitor, uh, which was stopped. It was a phase two trial because of toxicity, but it did show activity, so I suspect that we'll see more of that. There was an update on the ICON-8, which is first-line therapy of weekly paclitaxel as compared to standard three-week dosing, again, um, a regimen that was adapted from uh, patients with breast cancer. And in the Japanese trial, there was an advantage to what we call dose-dense or weekly paclitaxel, but in the U.S. large trial and now in ACON-8, in white, mostly white women uh, and European-American women, there does not seem to be that advantage. The um, other large area that was um, reported was maintenance therapy. Uh, We have been very frustrated in ovarian cancer in that we get great initial response rates and then the patients develop a recurrence. And so we've been looking for years for the ideal maintenance therapy. And there was the ICON-6 that was reported using uh, sidarinib, which is an oral inhibitor of VEGF, as maintenance therapy following platinum therapy for the first relapse, which extended progression-free survival and a non-significant but, in my opinion, clinically important in median overall survival. The toxicities were tolerable, so I think that we will see that in the maintenance setting. Uh, Julie talked also about the um, anti-hormonal therapies and like breast in ovarian cancer, in those tumors that that express an estrogen receptor, uh, there was an increase in um, 
response rates and in uh, progression-free interval in patients receiving letrozole as compared to placebo. Um, when added to bevacizumab, we increased the progression-free survival at 12 months even further. So that's an area, and so for patients, if they've not had their tumors tested for estrogen receptor uh, presence, it's a very easy test to request from the physician. And the uh, PARP, uh, again, Dr. Graylaw mentioned the PARP use in breast cancer as emerging therapies in ovarian cancer, as she mentioned, it has been approved, and several studies were presented. Neraparib was associated with a significant improval in progression-free survival, and interestingly, not only in BRCA mutations um, or in patients with BRCA mutations, and it suggested some efficacy in platinum resistance. So this is a very exciting class of drugs to explore for use in ovarian and, as you heard, possibly breast. The ARIEL-3 trial was another trial with um, a PARP inhibitor um, in maintenance therapy in patients with recurrent cancer, and it also had activity showing an increase in progression-free survival. And interestingly, again, both in the BRCA mutations and those without mutations, with a higher response rate in patients with homologous repair deficiency, which as Dr. Grelo described, the BRCA-ness-like tumors. The... Um, there was an update on platinum-sensitive recurrent ovarian cancer, and the recommendation was to treat with bevacizumab, carboplatin, and paclitaxel. In platinum-sensitive uh, BRCA mutation carriers and those with homologous recombination deficiency, neuroparib as maintenance provided longer progression-free survival in patients with recurrent disease who originally had been treated with a platinum based therapy, and again, it was irrespective, interestingly, of both BRCA mutation and the homologous repair deficiency. The duration of response was longer in those with mutations. These are very well-tolerated drugs. Um, in platinum-sensitive disease, a phase two suggested that a combination of olaparib and sidorinib was more effective than olaparib alone the benefit was mostly in germline BRCA mutation carriers. And as already noted, in Area 3, Recarborib was active in the maintenance setting. And to sum up um, the surgery findings, lymphadenectomy did not improve overall survival in patients with advanced uh, ovarian cancer, which we've now seen in several other diseases, including melanoma. Um, neoadjuvant therapy, that is chemotherapy and biologic therapy given before surgery um, is feasible, and the study drug that was tested was bevacizumab, um, which is contraindicated in patients who are going to have surgery, so it's not been widely used as a neoadjuvant. However, they allowed a free, a bev free interval to perform surgery. And although there was no difference in progression-free survival or surgical operability, it did show that you could give it in that setting. Uh, so overall, this was an important and informative meeting, especially with respect to clarifying, clarifying the role of PARPs in the maintenance and recurrent disease setting. 
And I'd like to thank Cancer Care again for inviting me to participate. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Ronowitz. That was a wonderful presentation, and thank you. Thank you so much. And our next presenter on prostate cancer is Dr. Susan Sloven. Dr. Sloven is attending physician, genital urinary oncology service, Sydney Kimmel Center for Prostate and Urologic Diseases, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor of Medicine, Department of Medicine, Walt Cornell College of Walt Cornell Well College of Cornell University. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Sloven, who will be addressing prostate cancer. Thank you very much, Carolyn, and uh, good afternoon to everyone. I'm glad that everybody's tuning in to hear the latest and the greatest of what's going on in oncology. I'm charged, as always, with trying to cram a lot of information into a very short period of time. However, I think the most important thing to convey to everyone today are updates that have to do with change in clinical practice. So prostate cancer has been very fortunate to have had five new approved drugs over the last several years, many of which are oral medications and have really improved quality of life, among other parameters that we often look at in prostate cancer. The most interesting has been in the setting of patients who have newly diagnosed metastatic disease, meaning disease outside the prostate that has gone to bone or lymph node or both. The standard of care for so many years has been immediate cessation or discontinuation of the source of testosterone, meaning that a patient will often receive an injection either in the muscle of the backside or under the skin of the abdomen that immediately shuts down the communication from the brain to the gonads whereby testosterone is no longer made. And of course, as many as you already know, a lot of patients or most patients will undergo the equivalent of a chemical-induced menopause. Well, that those hormones can be given either uh, alone or they can be given with oral medications that are known as anti-androgens. They're a type of hormone that will uh, block the ability of the pre-existing testosterone in your bloodstream from binding to the tumor cell and making the tumor cell grow. So this is what we call combined blockade. You're, by, you're, you're blocking at the level of the brain and you're blocking at the level of the individual cancer cell and preventing it from being stimulated. Now, whether you are on the injection alone or the injection plus a pill makes no difference because for many, many years we've known that patients who have metastatic disease respond very well, very often uh, what we call stage four, but stage four patients with metastatic disease have often gone into remission, sometimes for months to years. So this has been a mainstay of treatment. Many of you know that uh, about a year or so ago there was a lot of interest in uh, a new approach, which was practice changing, and that was the introduction of chemotherapy with a standard drug called docetaxel. Docetaxel is used in a wide range of other solid tumor malignancies. But the interesting thing was that the addition of docetaxel to hormonal therapy in patients who had metastatic disease seemed to provide them with very significant benefit. In fact, those patients who had greater than four areas uh, on a bone scan that had metastatic disease 
actually seemed to do better than most of the other patients who had fewer diseases, uh, fewer sites of disease. But keep in mind, what we're talking about are large sites of disease, not tiny little pinpoints, but things that are very noticeable on imaging. So that changed the standard of care because we felt that patients who come in with a, an enormous amount of disease that is seen on imaging may in fact, or if did in fact have a benefit using chemotherapy up front, whereas before we would only use chemotherapy after patients had failed conventional hormonal therapy. So this is the first time that this would be ever used at the beginning of diagnosis. Now we fast forward another year and now we have something that's also practice changing. Many of you know that abiraterone, the other name for it is Zytiga, was approved a number of years ago and uh, is an oral medication that blocks the synthesis of the male hormones uh, actually inside the tumor. So remember the drugs such as Lupron or Zolidex, which are drugs that affect the production of testosterone by the gonads, uh, is one approach, but what Zytiga has done or abiraterone has done is that the tumor cell itself once it becomes resistant to certain therapies, actually produces its own testosterone and self-stimulates, like a dog trying to catch its tail. It just keeps re-stimulating over and over again. Well, in lieu of Zytiga's approval, which was in patients who failed chemotherapy and then another approval in patients uh, who did not as yet receive chemotherapy, a very large trial called Latitude, as well as another trial called Stampede, both documented in very large, over 1,000 patient studies, respectively, that the addition of abiraterone to hormonal therapy actually had a significant impact on these patients who presented with metastatic disease at presentation. In fact, it delayed cancer progression by an average of 18 months. They also found that by adding abiraterone and prednisone to the hormonal therapy, it also reduced uh, the risk of a demise by 80, but, but close to 40% compared with those patients who did not receive this treatment. So this was practice changing relative to everything that we've seen before. And one of the reasons that it's interesting is that while we know survival outcome appears to be similar for men on hormonal therapy who take chemotherapy, as well as those men who are getting now abiraterone plus hormonal therapy, there are some advantages of perhaps considering abiraterone. I mean, a lot of a lot of the doctors are now facing this, this conundrum of, well, patient has metastatic disease. Do I give that person standard hormones? Do I give that person a combination of docetaxelin hormones, or do I give Zytiga? and hormones. So one has to take under advisement the differences in the side effects, how the patient looks, acts, and feels before even embarking on uh, one of these three approaches. Side effects of abiraterone are relatively small, particularly if you take uh, prednisone along with it. But the benefit is that it is an oral pill. You are not going to lose your hair. You may uh, otherwise, with chemotherapy, feel tired, may feel a little bit of nausea, a little anemia, hair loss, and the like. But that's not been the case when people are on an oral drug such as abiraterone. The other thing, of course, is that it's a pill, and one does not have to 
have an intravenous the way every uh, chemotherapy is usually administered. But the good news essentially is that, you know, men who have uh, a higher burden of cancer are going likely to live a lot longer with this approach. So keep in mind that over 1,200 patients from more than 200 medical centers were really evaluated for this, and they uh, they did extremely well. So again, one has to take this under advisement in terms of which is the best approach for you, and only your doctor really can uh, really uh, impact on the way to do this. Now, there is clearly a theme here, and I think you're going to hear it in every presentation, that has to do with, in, at some level, uh, genetic profiling. Now, keep in mind that prostate cancer is a very heterogeneous disease, and when we say heterogeneous, for every Gleason score that you might have, let's say a Gleason 7 or 8, these are cells that all appear to be the same, but there may be some cells that are more aggressive uh, or lethal versus those who are also Gleason 7 or 8 that are more indolent or slow-growing. The problem is that we, we just don't have the technology available to determine which of those cells is going to be uh, a problem as the disease transitions from localized to metastatic. There are a number of efforts in multiple institutions that are really trying to profile the cancer genomically to determine how they will behave. I mean, this is done really at the at the incipients at the time of biopsy or even later on as the disease changes, but also will determine whether or not there are mutations or alterations in the DNA of certain genes that govern your ability uh, clearly to have your cells divide, but whether or not they will in some way determine whether or not you could be a candidate for some of the newer therapies that are out there. So, for example, there have been accelerated approvals for PARP inhibitors, a drug called Olaparib in prostate cancer for those patients who have BRCA2. Now, this is really a minority of the patients, but when you have your tissue profiled, and this should only be done with uh, bona fide places such as Foundation Medicine or perhaps at a, at a leading academic institution, one of the benefits of doing this is, number one, it determines whether or not you might have benefit from this class of drugs. You've already heard that it's some benefit in perhaps uh, in breast as well, just newly approved in ovarian cancer, but whether or not it will make an impact on, on your uh, uh, treatment response. And then the second is that these genomic profiles often will allow us to know if there are any heritable alterations in what we call the germline, that which is used to, you know, the, the DNA that is used to reproduce to your children. So very often mutations such as ATM or uh, 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 BRCA1 or 2 have actually been inherited by sons or daughters, and those are the ones that we would want to follow very closely and to talk and talk about genetic risks. So this is an exceptionally exciting time for treatments in prostate cancer. It's an exciting time in terms of this profiling because we have so much information, we really don't know how to use it. But I think everybody should discuss with their physician whether or not it is relevant to uh, their cancer in terms of how to go about having more information on how their cancer may potentially uh, behave. Thank you, Carolyn. Back to you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Slovin. That was excellent and really wonderful, and thank you so much, as always. 
And um, our next speaker is Dr. Jeffrey Bruce. Dr. Bruce is the Edgar M. Houspian Professor of Neurological Surgery, Vice Chairman of Academic Affairs, New York Presbyterian Columbia University Medical Center, Director Bartoli Brain Tumor Research Laboratory, Co-Director Brain Tumor Center. And Dr. Bruce will be addressing updates from ASCO on brain cancer. It's now my great pleasure to turn this program over to Dr. Bruce. Thank you, Carolyn. It's a pleasure to be here today. Uh, the recent ASCO meeting highlighted uh, a number of very exciting, innovative clinical trials for patients with brain tumors. This is a very productive and exciting time for brain tumor research. As you probably know, the standard treatment for patients with gliomas is to first surgically remove them as completely as possible, followed by a six-week course of radiation and then chemotherapy with a drug called Temidar. Now, even though most patients respond well to standard treatment, these tumors generally grow back at some point. And because of this tendency to grow back, newer and better experimental treatments are needed. And that's why the ASCO meetings are so important. They provide an outlet for investigators to discuss the new treatments that are being developed out in the research community. Now, probably the most exciting area in brain tumor research right now involves immunotherapy. Immunotherapy involves treatments that use the patient's own immune system to fight the tumor. This is similar to what happens when you get an infection such as a virus or bacteria. Your body mounts a vigorous immune response to get rid of the infection. Well, a similar thing happens when patients have tumors. However, the problem is that the immune system is generally not strong enough to overcome the rapidly growing tumor. And so a growing area of research then involves looking for ways to boost the immune response in tumors. And one of the more exciting immunotherapy treatments came out of Germany, where investigators are testing what is known as dendritic cell immunotherapy in patients with newly diagnosed glioblastoma. Dendritic cells are specialized immune cells that enhance the immune response. And they can actually be harvested from the patients, then grown in test tubes and activated so that they can be delivered back into the patients. So these patients in the German study were treated with an immunotherapy drug called nivolumab, which works by acting as what is known as a checkpoint inhibitor. And you've heard other speakers today speak of that. And checkpoint inhibitors, you may have heard about them because they've been successful in patients with malignant melanomas. Well, anyway, this combination of dendritic cells and checkpoint inhibitor helped improve the survival in patients with newly diagnosed glioblastoma. The additional drug helped improve the, the survival over just the dendritic cells alone. And so this is an exciting result that will need to be tested in a larger number of patients before we can say that it is truly effective. An additional promising immunotherapy report came from a multiple institution trial in Japan where patients were vaccinated with several proteins that were chosen after analyzing each patient's tumor to predict how likely it would be to respond. These proteins are produced in the tumor and are known to actually provoke an immune response. So by taking these proteins and then injecting them back in the patient's once a week for 12 weeks, they act as a vaccine. And the vaccine stimulates 
the immune response to these proteins, and because they're also in the tumor, the immune response extends to the tumor itself. And although the results are still preliminary, this is a promising new immunotherapy because it is able to pre-select the proteins for individual patients to maximize the likelihood of an effective response. So you're bringing an immune treatment that is very specific for each patient. There were two other immunotherapy studies that looked at measuring the immune response in patients. One of the problems with immunotherapy is that it's not always possible to know whether the treatment is working or how well it is working. So in one study where patients received two immunotherapy drugs, nivolumab and ipilimumab, the patients then underwent a biopsy after treatment which showed that the drug had actually had an effective activity biologically. And so although the results didn't determine whether it had improved survival, it certainly showed that the immunotherapy was having the desired effect. Similarly, in a trial in Turkey, patients' tumors were first identified to see whether they have what is known as PD-L1 expression, which is a a, a uh, marker that's associated with the immune checkpoint inhibition. And so these checkpoint inhibitors are responsible for blocking the uh, uh, undesired immune effect or the, or the side effects from the immunotherapy that don't work. And this study simply looked at the PDL1 expression, which is a reflection of immune response, and found that chemotherapy and radiation can actually improve the immune response meaning that patients in this group may be more susceptible to immunotherapy in the future. So these types of studies are important for us to understand how the immune response is working in brain tumor patients. So even though they're not specifically clinical trials, they're informative trials. They help us to understand how these treatments work. Now, another promising area of research is what is known as targeted therapy. This means that patients' tumors are initially analyzed using some very sophisticated molecular biologic techniques to determine whether the tumor has abnormalities known as mutations. These mutations make them susceptible to different drugs. So a trial that came out of Memorial Sloan Kettering looked at a drug called bemorafenib, which is known as a BRAF V600 kinase inhibitor. And this particular abnormality in gliomas was targeted with the drug and showed some encouraging results as an, efficient, as an efficient targeted therapy for those carefully selected groups of patients with this unique abnormality. So this showed that if you select patients that are likely to respond to a spe specific therapy, then you're more likely to have success. This type of targeted therapy is also given names like precision medicine or personalized therapy, and you may have heard some of those terms out there. Along these lines was a multi-institutional, multi-center trial run by one of my colleagues, Andy Lassman, which showed that a toxin drug that targeted EGF receptors on the surface of the tumor could be used against those patients who actually were identified as having EGF receptor abnormalities in their tumor. And this trial showed that the toxin would bind to the EGF receptor on the tumor in order to kill the tumor cells. A similar trial out of Boston Medical Incorporated, looked at a drug called DBI-608, which targets cancer stem cells. And this showed that the cancer stem cells could be targeted with a specific drug 
and although this is at a very early stage, it was seen as having great potential. Now, I also wanted to mention another area of investigation using what is known as viral therapy, where viruses, similar to those that cause herpes or cause the common cold, can actually be engineered to kill tumor cells. And this involves some very sophisticated levels of technical engineering to make the special viruses, and it served as a basis for two different trials. One was a multi-institutional trial that looked at something called oncolytical, oncolytic virus DNX2401, which is a virus that, when given to the tumor, helps to provoke an immune response. And an immune-enhancing drug known as interferon is given at the same time to further expand that immune activity of this virus. This had some very promising results at an early stage. Along those lines, another virus called VD111 was tried in a multi-institutional trial, was found to have a very potent immune response that seemed to be prolonging survival in patients with glioblastoma. I wanted to also mention some very provocative work looking at the basic science of gliomas, where a group from the Netherlands looked at some sophisticated genetic makeup in the glioblastoma patients to see how they would interact with certain certain drugs. And these sophisticated studies involve something called next-generation sequencing. And this sophisticated study is used to identify those abnormalities or mutations that could be directly targeted with drugs. Uh, I want to end here by recommending that all patients and their families consider looking for a brain tumor specialist when trying to find the best treatments. These specialists are often associated with academic medical centers where brain tumor te teams work together to try aggressive treatments and new treatments that may be hel helpful. And also groups like cancer care are important because they provide support and information for patients who are looking for answers when faced with these challenging tumors. You should know also that there are some outstanding laboratories and researchers who are working with glioblastomas and are making headway with some very sophisticated and clever ideas. So there's more optimism now forever, than ever for finding better treatments and improving the quality of life than really ever before. Uh, thank you very much. I'll turn this back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Bruce. That was really outstanding and really very helpful for people to hear about the breakthroughs or things that are happening now in, with brain cancer. So thank you so much, and particularly with glioblastoma. Thank you. And our next speaker is a Dr. Christoph Mizikowicz. Dr. Mizikowicz is going to be addressing oral head and neck cancer. Dr. Mizikowicz is Associate Professor of Medicine, Hematology and Medical Oncology. He's Assistant Professor of Otolaryngology, ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai Hospital. It's now my great pleasure to turn the program over to Dr. Mizikowicz. Uh, hello, so good afternoon or good morning, depending on where you're located. It's an absolute pleasure to be uh, one of the speakers in this uh, panel. So I'm going to be covering the head and neck cancer. So um, the main theme that uh, I notice is at ASCO is obviously immunotherapy and the role of immunotherapy in management of head and neck cancer. I want to cover a few topics. One of them is a patient selection. Uh, so what we can do to make sure that uh, we're going to select patients better for different treatment options that we have, we have, and one of them is immunotherapy. I'm going to discuss some new promising agents, something that can be added to the current treatment, and it looks very promising. Uh, and I'm going to discuss how we can incorporate immunotherapy to 
different treatment modalities that we use in, in head and neck cancer. So first, I want to see. Uh, I want to say something. What is so different and appealing about immunotherapy? And I'm going to be using some illustrative uh, methods or metaphors, and I'm going to be explaining this. So first, what is the difference between chemotherapy and immunotherapy? And it's going to be a very simplified way. So chemotherapy, I tell my patient, sort of like a poison that we're trying to poison the cancer, but at the same time not poison the, the patient. And as a consequence, obviously, patient they have several side effects. And obviously, as maybe it's not as appealing, but at the same time, it's a very powerful tool and a strategy. So I still want to say that even though that everybody talks about immunotherapy, I don't want to forget about chemotherapy because this is something that we still can use in the management of head and neck cancer. On the other hand, what I tell my patients, what's so interesting and appealing about immunotherapy, that we're going to be using your own body to fight with your cancer. As of now, your cancer cannot see your cancer because it thinks your body is kind of tricky. It thinks that cancer belongs to you, so we have to make the cancer visible. And there are different methods to do it. And the other thing that we can do, unfortunately, as a consequence, when the cancer is invisible, our immune system is not turned on. So there are some methods that we can kind of turn on your immune system so it can fight with the cancer. As promising as it sounds, not all the patients respond to immunotherapy. So obviously the question for us physicians is who should get immunotherapy? So there's an interesting uh, presentation done by Dr. Haddad from Dana-Farber. So what are the other tools that we can use to kind of increase the probability that the immunotherapy is going to work? And now I'm going to use kind of the metaphor. When you're going to try to imagine having a white wall, and if you want to notice something, it either has to be big, so we can imagine having a red dot, so it has to be a size, or you have to have many dots. So you have to have many kind of red dots on the white wall in order for our eyes to kind of detect and kind of react. So... What they use uh, in this abstract, they use what is called a mutation load. So what it is, basically, it's a number of the mutations. So each mutation can kind of represent this red dot on the wall. So more mutations you're going to have, there is a probability that obviously our immune system will going to be able to recognize it and fight it. So in his presentation, he showed that patients that they received immunotherapy with pembrolizumab, and this is one of the check, checkpoint inhibitors that we use that turn on the immune system, was used to treat those patients. And for the patient that the mutation load was high, meaning had more red dots, those were the patients that they were responding to immunotherapy. So what was really interesting that unfortunately, it only worked in patients that were HPV negative. It didn't work for the HPV positive patients. But it kind of illustrates that obviously as exciting as immunotherapy is, we still have to do a better job when it comes to patient selections because we want to make sure, absolutely sure, that the treatment that we're going to select is going to be the best treatment options because still chemotherapy can be a reasonable option for you as well. You just don't want to waste it. So there is so much progress that has to be done, and I'm sure, I'm sure that we're going to develop more tools that are going to help us to obviously select patients better. So I'm assuming it's not going to be something that we use as of now, which is a pdl one expression, that we're going to be using some other instruments, other tools, or tests that are going to help us to obviously make sure that the treatment that we're going to select is going to be absolutely the best treatment for you. I just want to now move to uh, something that is very promising, 
As of now, there are two treatments, two agents that we can use in the management of head and neck when it comes to immunotherapy. One of them is Optivo, um, and the other one is Keytruda, so the Pembrolizumab and Nivolumab. Those are very strange names, but those are the only two agents that we can use in management of head and neck cancer. We're obviously very thrilled to have them on board and obviously being able to treat our patients. But we always, as a physicians, we're greedy. We want to get better results. We want to give you the best treatment. So what was really exciting, I came across an abstract that uh, showed that if we're going to add the, an, an agent called epicardistat. So what is so unique about this strategy, you can think about the cancer and the immune system is sort of like a battlefield. Obviously, the immune system wants to attack the cancer, that they want to send all those soldiers to kind of fight with your cancer. But what cancer does, it kind of creates some kind of a shield around, so that all those soldiers cannot, can, cannot get into your cancer and cannot fight. So what is so unique about Apicad is that what it does, it changes the um, environment, or t tumor environment, that immunotherapy such as Optiva and Keytruda can work better. So basically what it does is that it reinstates immune surveillance and it helps the checkpoint inhibitors to work better. It looks very promising in management of head and neck cancer and melanoma, also with Keytruda as well as Nivolumumab. So it looks very promising, but I always, when I see those results, I always ask, what is the price? If my patients, not only are they going to benefit, but what kind of price are they going to be paying for this treatment? Because obviously, I don't want to subject them to many side effects. And unfortunately, many immunotherapy options, unfortunately, come with the high price because they expose you to many side effects. This one, what is really interesting, uh, does not add any significant toxicity to the treatment of Keytruda and Optivo. So I think it's very interesting and it's very appealing. And this is something that was also tested in other cancers, such as colorectal cancer and head and, head and neck, as well as lung cancer. So I'm really looking forward into this. And obviously, this is not a commercially available medication. So I would strongly encourage our patients that if you want to get the best treatments, that currently we have explosion of those new cutting-edge treatments, the only access you can get to them is through clinical trials. And I would strongly encourage you to ask your physician what kind of clinical trials you have before they're going to eventually select the standard treatment because it may be much better. Not only are you going to benefit yourself, you're going to benefit us as physicians so we can do a better job, but are you going to benefit subsequent patients for which we can select better treatment options. So I would say ask your physician without even remembering the drug that they mentioned, Epicardistat, that uh, your physicians, they should be able to direct you and offer you the best treatment. Now I'm going to move to, um, to the other topic. As of now, as I mentioned, immunotherapy is approved in management of head and neck cancer. A little bit of the introduction. When a patient develops metastatic disease, um, we offer first-line treatment. When this patient progresses, we go to the second-line treatment, and it goes on and on, third, third and fourth. So immunotherapy, as of now, is only approved as a second-line treatment. So we have to use chemotherapy first in order to give you immunotherapy. And what was presented at ASCO, there is a unique situation when immunotherapy, as of now, can be implied, uh, applied in the first-line settings. For patients that they just receive chemotherapy and radiation with hope that, obviously, we're going to cure this cancer, unfortunately, some of those patients 
Um, they have a cancer coming back very soon, within six months, and for some patients, this cancer never disappears. For those patients, we can use Optivo because it showed that it's better than giving them chemotherapy. So there are very unique situations that sometimes immunotherapy, even though it's approved in second-line settings, can be applied in some specific scenarios in first-line settings. And I would encourage your physician, obviously, to guide you through this process, or eventually you can ask them if this is the best option. There are some, there are some other tools that we use in, uh, in management of head and neck, and it's called radiation or chemotherapy and radiation. So as we very satisfied sometimes with the results of chemotherapy and radiation. The question is now, can we add immunotherapy? As immunotherapy kind of storm into our doors, can we use it in the management of locally advanced head and neck cancer when we use chemotherapy and radiation? So first we have to ask the question, as it was presented by one of the previous speakers, is it safe? Can we add immunotherapy to radiation and chemotherapy and is it going to be something that can be tolerated by our patients? So this is the first question we have to ask before it's going to be used as a standard treatment. Are we going to ask if it's really making any difference? So as of now, it seems that immunotherapy does not add an additional toxicity when we use chemotherapy and radiation. So it looks very promising. So obviously, I'm sure we're going to see some subsequent studies, and some of them are open and ongoing. We're going to be asking a question if immunotherapy improves the outcome of our patients. And obviously, again, I would strongly encourage you to be part of those studies. So overall, I, say, I tell my patients that immunotherapy a uh, few years ago kind of stormed in into our offices. But this is the perfect storm and good things are happening. But in order to be part of this, you have to help us as we're helping you, and we have to, you have to help other people. And I think the clinical trial option, as sometimes maybe scary-looking it can be, this is the best option for you, and I strongly encourage you to be part of this so next year when we're going to meet, we can present studies that maybe you are part of. So as of now, I just want to finish my talk, and thank you again for listening to me. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Masikowicz. That was wonderful and really very informative in terms of the different treatments available for people with oral head and neck cancer, so thank you. And our next speaker um, is Dr. Priscilla Merriam, and Dr. Merriam will be addressing sarcoma. Uh, Dr. Merriam is physician, medical oncology, sarcoma and bone cancer treatment center, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, instructor of medicine, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Miriam is going to present to you on sarcoma and also will offer a wrap-up of the call as well, part two of the call. So we appreciate her doing this. And I'm now going to um, turn my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Miriam. Uh, thank you, Dr. Rester. Thanks for joining me in. I'm privileged to join you and the other speakers to share highlights from the 2017 ASCO annual meeting. This is an exciting year for ASCO at ASCO for sarcoma with updated results of previously presented studies as well as presentations of trials of new promising drugs for the treatment of sarcoma. First, Dr. Sanchala presented a randomized multinational phase three study of the drug aldoxorubicin. Aldoxorubicin is a new form of the drug doxorubicin, a chemotherapy that's been used for many years as one of the main treatments for sarcoma. Earlier studies of aldoxorubicin, which were presented previously at ASCO, compared aldoxorubicin to standard doxorubicin and suggested that aldoxorubicin might have good activity in patients with sarcoma. 
In the study that was presented this year, 443 patients who had previously received chemotherapy were previously assigned either to get aldoxorubicin or to get one of five treatment options selected by their physician. The results showed a possible benefit from aldoxorubicin as compared to investigator's choice, but the study results did not show this definitively. One possible reason for this lack of clarity might be related to the design of the study. Patients who had previously received doxorubicin were eligible to enroll in this study. It's thought that it's possible this complicated the interpretation of the activity of aldoxorubicin. Importantly, in this study, the development of decreased heart function was lower with aldoxorubicin as compared to doxorubicin. This is an interesting possible benefit from this new form of doxorubicin. For now, we will wait to see if the FDA, after reviewing this data and prior data on aldoxorubicin, if they decide to approve it uh, now that we see the results of this large study. Additionally, there were several immunotherapy trials that were reported this year. Dr. Sandra D'Angelo reported a phase two study of two different immunotherapy drugs, nivolumab and ipilimumab. Nivolumab and ipilimumab are both drugs that help the body's immune system recognize cancer cells, and specifically in these studies, sarcoma cells, as foreign, freeing the immune system to attack the sarcoma. There have been encouraging results in other cancers when these two drugs have been used in combination. In this sarcoma study, 85 patients participated who had previously received treatment for their sarcoma. Participants were randomly assigned to one of two groups. One group received nivolumab only. The other group received both nivolumab and ipilimumab together for four treatments and then received only uh, nivolumab. In the group that received only nivolumab and never received ipilimumab, responses were seen in certain patients. In the group that received both nivolumab and ipilimumab, there were additional responses seen in patients as compared to the number of responses seen in the group who had received only nivolumab. These results were encouraging because the responses that were seen in both groups of patients and that responses were seen in multiple types of sarcomas. This was a small study. Uh, it does not prove that two immunotherapies together, two immunotherapy drugs together are better than one immunotherapy drug, but it showed encouraging results from this attempt at combining immunotherapy drugs. Currently, we're looking at New approaches to using immunotherapy, such as combining two different immunotherapy drugs or combining an immunotherapy drug with chemotherapy, among other combinations. And these are a, this is an active area of investigation. Updated results were presented from the multi-center uh, phase two study of pembrolizumab, which uh, was conducted by SARC, or the Sarcoma Alliance for Research Through Collaboration. Pembrolizumab is a PD-1 inhibitor, which is just like nivolumab, uh, which I was just, uh, describing in the previous trial. In this study, a total of 80 patients enrolled with specific subtypes of sarcoma. The subtypes were leiomyosarcoma, liposarcoma, undifferentiated pleomorphic sarcoma, synovial sarcoma, osteosarcoma, Ewing sarcoma, and high-grade or dedifferentiated chondrosarcoma. Early data from this trial were presented at ASCO last year. 
The results presented this year showed responses to pembrolizumab in certain patients, including some patients, some of the patients with undifferentiated pleomorphic, uh, pleomorphic sarcoma. Researchers are now analyzing tumor samples, samples taken during biopsies performed before and after treatment with pembrolizumab. They are investigating how the immune system and tumors interact during treatment with pembrolizumab and trying to determine which patients might be more likely to benefit from treatments like pembrolizumab. Finally, in the immunotherapy group, Dr. Nita Samaya presented the results of a phase one study of CMB305, which is a therapy designed to stimulate the immune system in a different way than the drugs that I've been discussing previously. Patients who are eligible for participation in this trial had to have tumors that expressed a special marker called NYESO1, and this marker was actually described earlier today in the call. Sarcoma types with this marker include synovial sarcoma and myxoid liposarcoma. Treatment with CMB305 involved injection of a virus designed in the lab to deliver the NYESO marker to the immune system to help the immune system recognize NYESO as foreign. Also delivered was a, an immune system booster. 25 patients with either synovial sarcoma or myxoid liposarcoma participated in the study. In general, it was well-tolerated, and many patients there was some encouraging control of the sarcoma, although the study was not designed primarily to look at response rates. One aspect of the study that was unique was that there appeared to be a delay in responses when they were seen, but that those responses appeared to persist over time. This pattern of response seems to be consistent with other uh, responses that we've seen in immune-based therapies and challenges us to, uh, to be more open-minded about the types of responses we may see based on the type of therapy that we're using. There were several encouraging reports from Phase two trials designed specifically for some of the uh, unique types of sarcomas. SARC, as I mentioned, the Sarcoma Alliance for Research Through Collaboration, sponsored a randomized study in patients with alveolar soft part sarcoma to study the effects of an oral medication called sidirinib. Sidirinib is thought to work by interfering with blood vessels that feed tumors and by affecting other tyrosine, kinase and, uh, other tyrosine kinases. This was an international study uh, in which 48 patients participated. Half of the patients were assigned randomly to take sidirinib, and the other half of patients were randomly assigned to take placebo. This was a promising, uh, there was promising activity in terms of tumor responses in the patients who took the sidirinib. This is excellent news for the treatment of alveolar soft part sarcoma, uh, which is a type of sarcoma that is currently um, uh, of interest in, in trials of other agents at this time as well. Another SARC trial that was presented at ASCO uh, was of uh, uh, regorafenib in patients with Ewing sarcoma and related tumors who had previously been treated. 30 patients were treated with a tyrosine kinase inhibitor regorafenib with benefits seen among some of the participants. In another specific type of sarcoma, solitary fibrous tumor, the drug pizopinib, also a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, was studied in 36 patients in a multi-institutional European study, and there was benefit seen in some of the patients who participated in the study as well. Lastly, there is significant interest, as there always is at ASCO, in new options for patients with gastrointestinal stromal tumors, or GIST. Dr. Heinrich presented some of the early results from the first 40 patients participating in the Phase one study of BLUE-285 in patients with GIST. 
Flu-285 is a drug designed to help patients, to treat patients whose GIST tumors have a unique mutation called D842V, as well as other patients with GIST that have been previously treated. In this early uh, phase study, different doses of Blue 285 were used to learn about the safety of Blue 285 and to determine the best dose for later studies. Encouraging results were seen in participants with D842V mutations and in certain patients who had GIST tumors that had progressed on prior GIST therapies. ASCO 2017 illustrated for us the significant interest in developing new drugs for GIST as well as investigations into identifying new targets for treating GIST. I'd like to also update you that um, as we've been on the call today, there's been uh, an exciting update. I'm stepping away from sarcoma for a moment um, because as we were uh, on the call today, there's been an update to Dr. Grelo's talk. Uh, we received information that one of the, uh, the trials that she discussed at ASCO um, uh, for a drug that's called abemocyclib uh, was recently approved just today by the FDA. Uh, and this drug was approved uh, by the FDA in combination with fulvestrant for women with hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative advanced or metastatic breast cancer with disease progression following endocrine therapy. It was also approved as monotherapy for women and men with hormone receptor positive HER2 negative advanced or metastatic breast cancer with disease progression after endocrine therapy and prior chemotherapy for patients with metastatic disease. And these approvals were bo uh, based on the MONARCH-1 and the MONARCH-2 studies. So in summary, I, I, I want to um, say that from listening uh, to all the speakers today, you know, I, would, I have certainly heard, and you may have also noticed, that um, different speakers discuss different types of cancers. But uh, just as I alluded to in my talk, you may have heard similar themes and even similar drugs that were mentioned in the treatment of different types of cancers. Uh, this really uh, illustrates the fact that our understanding of how to best treat tumors is um, evolving. Uh, instead of focusing on treating a cancer based on the area of the body that it uh, originated, we're learning more and more that the best way to treat cancers may be instead based on molecular signatures of tumors. The possibility of using drugs such as those that target DNA repair mechanisms or immunotherapies or other types of targeted therapies uh, that's based on a unique signature of a tumor brings us to a very exciting time uh, in the care of patients with, with cancer. And that's what ASCO is all about, is uh, to share with uh, one another across different disciplines what the new approaches are in cancer and to help us figure out how we can treat patients based on the uh, unique uh, aspects of uh, that, that individual's cancer rather than some old ideas of how a cancer should be treated. I'd like to thank you for inviting me to review the uh, highlights of ASCO 2017 uh, and to thank everyone for listening uh, and for your interest in uh, furthering the care of patients with cancer. I hope you've been inspired by the in, uh, information we have learned today from the clinical trials presented at ASCO uh, and that you will talk to your treatment team about clinical trial opportunities. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Miriam. That was really outstanding. And not only did you cover um, sarcoma thoroughly, but you also really presented everyone with a really excellent summary of ASCO, what it's about, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, what the meeting was about, but also the common themes that are important to, to, to everyone to think about and, how, and what an exciting time this is in the treatment of, of cancers. 
I would like to actually wrap up the call myself, which is saying a few words in terms of cancer care. And I, I want to just add that um, at this time, uh, cancer care does have um, a fund for anyone affected by the hurricanes that have happened recently across the country. Many of you, people that you know and love, have been terribly affected by those uh, hurricanes. And so th- you can simply contact Cancer Care at one 800 813 or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. Um, in addition to those funds, we also offer other kinds of financial assistance programs, practical help, We also have a very large staff of oncology social workers, and they provide what we call counseling services, or really it's a chance to talk with someone about what you're experiencing with your cancer, with your cancer, or as a survivor, or as someone who's a caregiver to someone, or a loved one um, who's dealing with someone else's cancer, um, or a partner, um, so that our staff are here. um, And you can contact them um, by telephone or by visiting our website as well. You can actually pose a question or ask to speak to a social worker online as well. We also offer support groups. They're on the telephone and online. So again, for international participants or for people in the U.S. who prefer to do things more virtually. So again, um, we have online support groups and we have also online, uh, we have telephone support groups. So that would be your personal preference or individual counseling or family counseling. And we also do a very active Cancer Care for Kids program, a program that offers help to children who are affected by cancer in their families, helping children and teenagers and and young adults also deal with cancer in the family and young adults as well dealing with cancer themselves. We have workshops like this program, and we also have a, a lot of publications and fact sheets that you can access from our website as well. Now, also, I know some of you are left with questions at the end of the call and um, always want to know, where do I go to get my questions answered? Well, your healthcare team is always the best place to go. But on the other hand, we also recommend, some of you like to get information from very credible sources, and a number of our speakers mentioned the National Cancer Institute, then I would recommend that you either call them at 1-800-422-6237 or you visit their website at www.cancer.gov, and you'll be getting all this information also post the call as well. We'll be emailing all of you or sending you information about this. But they have information specialists on a live chat feature where you can post your question, and they will then have a back-and-forth chat feature with you to kind of give you all the information they can about your question. So it's just a wonderful resource for all of you to have. Most importantly, as we conclude the call today, we don't want any one of you to feel alone. There are a host of services out there to help you, um, cancer care being one of them, but we also, you all have all the information about the collaborating organizations, each of which offer very unique services that you can access. Um, and I do want to let you all know that we do have a program that might be of interest to all of you on the call today. Um, It's not a specific cancer. It's a mind-body techniques to cope with the stresses of cancer. And that's occurring on Wednesday, November 15th from 1.30 to 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time. So uh, stay tuned, and actually um, you may want to participate in that program. Some of you have signed up for it already. Um, It's a very popular topic, and many of you I know are using these techniques to cope with the stresses of cancer. And that applies both to people living with cancer, survivors, as well as caregivers. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.